everybody. Welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu, episode number 99. Glad you're with us here. My name is Gabe Essel. I'm here with my co-hosts, Dennis Levi Leach and Jonathan Gatz. How's it going, fellas? Great. 99 feeling fine. Good deal. All right. Well, we got 99 problems, but um, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is one of them. All right. <laughs> so so um, for those of you who haven't heard uh, a previous episode tonight, uh, a previous episode like the one tonight, we've, we're going to do tonight something uh, really fun and special is we induct artists into our own version of rock and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We call this the chew-ins, okay? So like shoe-ins, as you, as you could probably guess. Um, I think this is our fifth class, I believe, guys, uh, of, of the rock and roll of the shoe-ins. So I believe this is uh, the class of 2019 is class number five. And I'll give everybody a little bit of preface um, for this. These are artists that we feel like deserve more recognition. Um, and even though they might be popular artists, they will probably, and I, I, I say probably, never be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, just given, you know, some of the choices um, that we've seen over the years. But, you know, never say never. But most of these artists, none of them are in right now. Let's just say that every every single person we've inducted has never been nominated for the actual Hall of Fame. And that's the same, obviously, for this year's class as well. So, um I think really I speak. Go ahead. Yeah. Do you think that given how uh, record sales have changed the, you know, the, these these achievements and going platinum or gold or whatever right. uh, just aren't as common anymore? How do you foresee the induction, the, the nominated bands moving um, in that? you won't have these obvious behemoth bands yeah. that that sold millions and millions and millions, tens of millions of records. Yeah, I, I think that'll change. You know, I, I think right now the bands still getting inducted for the most part have sold a lot of records. Now, it's not true for everybody. They they also induct induct uh, some people on, you know, sort of critical merits. Um they're, they're, like they're kind of veterans committee that they have. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And, and we've talked about this before. You know, it's obviously we all while it's fun to to watch some of the induction ceremonies when they're on HBO and to watch, you know, some of our favorite artists play together. Um, and it's cool to see some of these acts recognized. Um, yeah, I you know, it's there is kind of there's always been this kind of gatekeeper mentality, you know, um, that governs a lot of the rock and roll hall of fame like oh i say this one's okay but not this one you know um like you know this new age band is fine but this rock band that was popular no not at all so mm -hmm. I, I i've always had a lot of issues around that you know it's like a lot of what is his name jan werner and his friends kind of you know picking and choosing who gets into this thing yeah uh, yeah it is so, pretty secretive the yeah the, uh, the voting right yeah, so I think that's going to change. I think you're right. I mean, I, I I don't know if that'll happen anytime soon because, you know, right now there's there's bands just aren't selling records like they used to, and that that won't certainly change anytime soon. But yeah, you know, you'll. Well, I, I, you know, honestly, oh, sorry to interrupt you. No, it's okay. I, I think where it is going to lead to, it's going to lead to like artists based off their merits of like views, downloads, yeah, YouTube, right. Instagram, well, yeah, that's ticket sales. Yeah, those, like those, that, are, those you know, are the new metrics, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. they're going to have to somehow 
And, you know, like you said, they're still picking pretty popular acts that sold lots of records. But, like, at some point, they're going to run out, and they're not going to – they're going to have to adjust to to those metrics that the music industry is now based on. Yeah, I I don't know. You know, like, all these SoundCloud rappers might go in the Hall of Fame in 25 years. I don't (laughs) know. Old Town Road. Right, right, yeah. So I, I, I don't know. Um, now, I, I look at I, I was talking a, a little bit about, you know, some of the artists that they've they've welcomed, they've inducted in recent years. And I'm glad to see it. Um, I, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples and they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. But within the last couple of years, I think I believe Boston got nominated. Right. Or got inducted and Journey got inducted. Um, a lot of critics kind of always thumb their noses at those bands back even back when those bands were popular in the late 70s right um so i personally um i like to see those bands get recognized because i think i think they deserve it i think you know i i obviously selling records isn't everything but they also influenced a lot of people as well like who didn't have the first boston record i'd imagine every single person that who's who's a guitarist who we respect probably enjoyed the first boston album at one point in their lives especially if they're mm-hmm. especially if they're people that are like anywhere from 10 to 15 years older than us well and you those, know? First, those yeah. first few journey records with steve perry those were They're hugely great. influential yeah. like yeah you know what i mean as far as Absolutely. like moving the ballad rock scene forward aor like, radio man yeah. they practically created it you know so i like to see it you know i'm i'm all those ones like i i think sticks should be in all right i'll, I'll stand by that so and Kansas, you know, and so now that they're recognizing those bands, um, which who were popular, but never had the critical acclaim. Um, you could also say the same about my favorite band with Kiss being inducted a few years ago. You know, Kiss has been eligible since like the year 2000, maybe even before that. I think like Kiss has been eligible since like 99. If you go by like the 25 year after the first mm-hmm. record. Sure. But they didn't get in until like 2014 or something like that. You know, because it was, it's just snobbery. You know, that's yeah, what it right. was. They oh, kept yeah. him out. Yeah. yeah, I mean, say what you will about Gene. He's a fucking douchebag, you know? But I mean, like, that's... We're not we're not putting right. people in there because they're nice people. No, they changed the game. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. They're, like... They're, yeah. they're pioneers of, like, marketing and, and rock what, music. And that's why they, they should have been in, like, long, like, first ballot just for that. Yeah, because some... Yeah. Some critics that, you know, think Elvis Costello and David Bowie are, are you know, the end-all, be-all of music, don't like Kiss. Well, and exactly. I like, and for the record, yeah. I like, I love David Bowie and Elvis Costello. Oh, no, yeah. There's I room in my heart for a yeah. wide spectrum of people, that's what both of you know. But, uh, yeah, you know, I think I think just this whole gatekeeper thing is what is what kept a lot of bands out. And it seems like that's, that's starting to break up now. Um, and and I, I mentioned Journey, another band... And they're, this is a band that's critically acclaimed, but except for maybe in Britain, I don't have the figures in front of me. I mean, how many like classic rock radio fans do you know that are like, oh, yeah, I was listening to Roxy Music the other day. You know, I mean, right. like WYMG doesn't play rock. That's sorry. It's a Springfield reference there for everyone not <laughs> from central Illinois listening. It's your typical classic FM hits radio classic rock radio um you know roxy music got in last year which i think is great you know mm-hmm. i mean they're they're pioneering and their albums are great but um that goes to show you that it's it you know it's not always going to be about record sales i mean fuck the ramones didn't sell a lot of records they sure. got it a long time ago sure 
you know, so. But it just takes longer to recognize them. And, yeah, it and, does. Uh, but yeah, it'll, it'll be fascinating when they don't have those metrics to really lean on. Right, to, right. Like, how do you determine this? Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's uh, it's it's record sales or it's influence. Um, so so yeah, I'm 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 hopeful because I uh, we'll segue here to our show. I started thinking about some of the first artists that came to mind for me. I hesitated because I I, I think that it's possible they might get in within the next few years. Like somebody like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, you know, is not in, but could very well be on the fringe uh, yeah. yeah on the fringe maybe like jethro toll as well um even i i, I, I yeah. the band i saw this weekend i thought about fish as well i i think from a live standpoint i don't really think you can you can deny how popular I think they get in. Yeah. yeah right yeah so yeah it's crazy that jethro toll is not in the rock and roll hall of fame I know. Yeah. No, I mean, look how long it took. Yes. You know, yes, just got in what three years ago. Same year as Pearl Jam. Yeah. So. So, yeah, um, they're they're not always good at at at, uh, recognizing, you know, prog and and and, uh, as a genre and metal as well. Like the fact that Iron Maiden's not in, I think, is just a crime. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at how much of a live juggernaut they are now. I mean, it's one of the most popular live rock and roll bands in the world. Actually, you know? is that is the fact that Iron Maiden is an in, is that an indication that it might be hard for Fish to get in? Maybe, yeah, maybe. I I, I don't know. Um, I mean, the Grateful Dead got in when like Jerry Garcia was still alive, yeah. but. And they got in when, like, they were allowing you to be like, oh, this guy played keyboards with us for two weeks. His name gets on the plaque. Yeah. Well, which, guy, which, guy, they, which they stopped doing. Yes, now. they did. Uh, 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 and he wasn't in the band for two weeks, but a guy who was a member of the Grateful Dead is also in a band that I'm going to induct as a true tonight. Yes. So, yes. so, so, yes. Um, but anyway, guys, before we get it, my, I, I, you guys maybe have your own criteria. For, for our chew-ins now, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame rant over. Um, mine has always been, uh, and there are a couple exceptions to this, but with the people I've inducted, it's always been like, they got to have three great albums to me. That's always been my own personal criteria. Now, I think there are some bands in the actual Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who deserve the acclaim that don't have three great albums, in my opinion. I'll give you two that have been inducted maybe within the last 10 years, NWA and Guns N' Roses, right? I don't think I... Sex Pistols in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I think they might be. You could argue they have one good record. Right, (laughs) right. And that's that's really all they did, you know? I mean, they've only got one real record, you know, Mm -hmm. one real LP. Um, And NWA, you know, has two LPs and an EP. One LP, a classic. The EP and the other LP are good, but not anywhere near the first one. And then Guns N' Roses, you know? I mean, obviously, I like Use Your Illusion, but I find it to be a little a little bloated compared to compared to how, uh, how lean Appetite is. But anyway, so yeah, so I always need three good albums, three great albums. Um, and I've, I've been able to match that criteria with all of the acts I've inducted. So I don't know if you guys, you guys have your own criteria that you've sorted out, or is it just sort of somebody that, you're keen on lately or somebody who uh, who maybe you think is important and deserves more recognition? Yeah, I would say in my aspect, it's someone that, A, I think not a lot of people maybe know about 
mm-hmm. or or realize. Um, and then also, it's got to be music that I enjoy. Sure. Well, yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and, right. Um, the uh, other than that, I think uh, I think the thing with me mainly is like someone that people haven't maybe heard as much of, of ever. Is, yeah. is what is what is usually one of my guiding principles of it mm-hmm. like someone that i think you know and i do look at the record sales and things like that and i take into account like influence how they've influenced people and stuff yeah. like that yeah but um yeah i would say that's kind of where mine comes out of yeah 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 i i agree with those points um though and you'll find out with with my induction uh, i i really didn't lean on the studio work so much as the the um the live repertoire uh though their 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 studio albums are are very good i don't know if i consider any of them great like like on par with with you know my favorite studio work um uh but overall the the not, not necessarily the influence of the members but the impact uh that the band had uh as uh, a live force um you know who who they worked with um uh, who was brought into their circle uh and the consistency um and longevity for which they were able to achieve those um you know great heights of of musicianship and uh and for me it's a band that i'll just keep going back to you know 20 sure. years later yeah and uh and and those are uh those are in addition to uh what you guys have already said yeah yeah you know the last band i inducted last year fairport fairport convention um that's a band that came to me a little bit later and tonight's inductee i i would say would be the same case you know i wasn't i wasn't listening to this band in high school same thing like i wasn't listening to fairport convention in high school i'd have been pretty fucking cool if i was uh, <laughs> you'd have zero probably, friends for, probably probably totally an outcast though as well <laughs> um but yeah so i uh yeah th- th- these bands i I've, I've sort of recognized their influence at a later stage in my life um they weren't necessarily bands i listened to growing up the, the last year's inducting this one um you know, one last thing as well before we, we get into our picks, you know, uh, about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Sorry, I'll just jump back for one second. There's one other point I wanted to get in. I don't like these arguments that are like, well, what they put in the rap music in there for, you know, like, I, yeah. fuck that. You yeah. know, like, like rap is rock and roll, you know, mm-hmm. right. um, it is. Uh, pop music is rock and roll. Yes, yeah. pop music is rock and roll. Yep. Now, if you want to change the name of the place and call it the you know the hall of fame of pop music fine you know whatever but i don't buy it sorry you know because i I feel like i see a lot of like old rock people you know like i don't know your person that listens to wymg like what the hell is madonna doing in the rock and roll hall of fame like uh, she's she's an icon who's made you know music that maybe you don't like but is really important you know and maybe (laughs) someday you'll appreciate it and maybe someday you'll appreciate it and i like i like madge as you guys know i've 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 stated that before on the show so but yeah so i don't buy that you know what i mean like i don't buy that like it's got to be people playing guitars you know right yeah yeah it's pretty Uh, short-sighted to to think that way because then you're gonna like start to set rules like yeah you gonna um, you gonna ignore everybody that was in Motown, you know? Like, I mean, granted, yeah. like of, of singers, you know? Yeah. yeah um, sure. Like, come on, yeah. So I'm not I'm not buying that. So, um, 
that said, let's let's start. Let's just go ahead and get into our our inductees, guys. Um, again, if you everybody before we get in, if you want to check out our previous inductees, we'll post a list of them when we start to promote this episode. Uh, but you can you can check back in the archives at rockchew.com uh, to see the previous classes of inductees. I think they've all come come in around July. I think. Yeah, they're usually summer. Episodes. We kind of we usually yeah. try to dovetail this with. Um, Usually the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony airing right and around the MLB there. ceremony. And, yeah, and the MLB ceremony as well. So that's kind of how this how this came to fruition. So cool. Well, um, you know, you know what? Uh, Levi, you know, this one this was a really good one. And I I'm, I'm obviously I love hosting the show with you guys. I'm always impressed with your choices. Um, and they always really resonate with me. But uh, Levi, I think you've got a, a, a great choice, and I think you should tell us about it. Well, and the the name of my group begins with the letter A, so it's right. The there we go. Of the alphabet. There we go. Um, <laughs> the group that I am inducting this year in 2019 into the Chew Hall of Fame, the Chew Wins, as we say, um, is the Average White Band. And um, for those of you that don't know, the Average White Band um, were a group of guys from Scotland <laughs> who played funk music. In America, the, the capital in the 70s, of funk, right? obviously. <laughs> and so, so yeah, um, Alan Gorey, Ani McIntyre, Molly Duncan, Michael Rosen, Roger Ball, and Robbie McIntosh were the original guys, and they originally had kind of jammed together in and around Scotland, and then they all like separately moved to London. In like the early 70s, 71 era. And so Michael Rosen quit and they brought aboard a guitarist singer named Hamish Stewart. And that solidified the the lineup of the band. And so they hadn't really seen each other since they moved from Scotland to London. And so they went to a traffic concert and like they all happened to be there. And so they... They were like, oh, you know, like we should probably try to jam music together like we used to in Scotland. And so they um, started kind of playing around London. And um, in 1972, I believe it was, or three, they backed Chuck Berry when he went to London and recorded My Dingling. Which is like a like a is like a kind of a famous corny Chuck Berry song. But um they then, like, you know, word was getting around that they were a really good band. And so um, Bonnie Bramlett had them be her backing band on her solo record from 1973, which is then what kind of got them discovered. And so um, one story suggests that, like, a friend heard them playing in London and said, that's too much for the average white man. <laughs> and that's how they kind of got the name. And then another story says that Bonnie Bramlett was the one that told them they should call themselves the average white band. <laughs> and so um, in 1973, they were lucky enough to get the opening slot for Eric Clapton on his comeback concert, which was like, you know what I mean? It was, that's a pretty big gig for a band that at that time they had only re- released one record. And so, um, so that's like, well, like 74 is 73, 73. Okay. Yeah. Which is that the rainbow bridge, which I I don't know if that's what they're referring it to. Um, they, they just listed it as, 
Eric Clapton's 73 comeback concert, which is crazy to think that people thought Eric Clapton was washed up in 1973. <laughs> They're like, he needs a comeback On concert. Smacks, maybe. He was. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that was, uh, he kind of went into a, 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 his own exile, exile of his own making there for a little, yeah. for about a year yeah. and a half or so. But yeah, he was really only out of the scene for about two and a half years. But anyway, mm-hmm. go yeah. ahead. Their, um, their first album, that one, uh, it's just AWB, Average White Band, self-titled. It's got a white cover with a drawing, which became their logo of the band, which is a woman sitting like naked with her back, and it makes the, the W. The derriere. W. Yeah, mm-hmm. the derriere. <laughs> and um, so that album had probably their biggest hit called Pick Up the Pieces. Right. And... um. They had like started touring on those songs before that album like officially dropped and that song became number one because that didn't happen until 1975. Well, unfortunately, um, in 1974, but right before the song got huge, they were like at this point in Hollywood, they were they had moved to LA, and so like. They're playing and like Elton John's showing up every night and like Jack Nicholson and like it was like a big thing. They were becoming a really big band. And um, they went to a party that Cher and Greg Ullman were having. (laughs) And 24 year old Robbie McIntosh, who a lot of people say was like the linchpin of the band. He was the drummer. And like people were saying he was like the one of the funkiest white drummers they'd ever heard in their life, you know, for whatever that, you know, is worth. But, um, like, that was one of the draws to the band. Like, Elton John wanted to record with Robbie McIntosh, you know, on drums. Well, he ODs at this party that Cher and Greg Allman have, and um, he ends up dying. And hmm. Alan Gorey, the, the bass player, he also ODs. But Cher, I guess, kept him conscious till like the EMTs arrived, and Holy so cow. it was like it was like a huge, huge, uh, you know, kick in the nuts to the band, obviously. Jesus. Whereas, like, pick up the pieces when they recorded it originally was like, you know, talking about, you know, either like picking up a girl or having a good time partying or something. But like, it literally turned into like they were having to like pick up the pieces of the band because. The drummer, who was like the main force of the band, dies, and then the the bass player, lead singer, were one of the lead singers. He almost dies as well, and um, it, it was just it was a really crazy time for them. So they didn't know, you know, at first what they were gonna do. So, but they continued on because they they, you know, they felt that that was what he would want them to do, and so. Like I said, Pick Up the Pieces becomes like a huge radio hit. And it's, um, you know, it, just funky instrumental, you know, radio hit is, yeah. you know. Even if, even it, if like, the listeners don't know the song by name, you play, like, I five seconds of the song, it, yeah. you'll hear it. It's been sampled so much, it. too. Oh, yeah, yeah. They they were sampled by, um like, Ice Cube, Too Short, Eric B. and Rakeem, The Beastie Boys, Public Enemy, TLC. Um, who else? Like, a bunch of rap artists right. have sampled Average White Band. And in a in a funny little um, kind of, like, nod of the cap, the JBs, which was James Brown's backup band, mm-hmm. in 1975, they released, like, a response song called Pick Up the Pieces One at a Time. 
just kind of like it's a tip of the hat and a tribute to the average white band. And um, they they released it as the name of their band was the AABB, the Above Average Black Band. <laughs> <laughs> well, well played, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so um, later in 1975, they released their next album, Cut the Cake, which was really popular as well. It didn't have near the record or the radio hits, I mean, um, as that first album. But mm-hmm. um, one other interesting record that they made in 1976, they collaborated with Benny King right. for, for an entire record, which is um, Benny King was those at home. He sang Stand By Me, I believe. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if it's the same... Same Benny King. Yes. Did you get a chance and, um, to listen to that one, Levi? I did. I when I was, I, I got to listen to like three other there. records today. Yeah, it, it, it's not bad. I bet. No. Yeah. 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 Honestly, I have a couple of. Uh, I have the record. They released a record before the first self-titled record on MCA, and I think it's called "Show Your Hand," and it mm-hmm. has almost the same exact songs. As that first album, but I believe there's one or two that are different. And um, I listen to it all the time. It's one of my favorite, just like throw on a record while I'm doing something kind of a record. It'll get you moving, um, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. The average white band definitely gets you in a funky groove, for sure. Um, One interesting thing is, so in 1983, they kind of had their first major breakup of, of that original lineup, minus the drummer who had passed. And um, Hamish Stewart left and played with Shaka Khan, which I thought was a really neat thing. Like, he got into her band, which then he, I guess, was seen by Paul McCartney. And so Hamish Stewart from the Average White Band played guitar and bass. It depended on what Paul was playing for, like, multiple tours with Paul McCartney in the late 80s and early 90s. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I the average white band, I think it's just one of those groups that, like you said, people may think they've never heard of them. But as soon as they hear the first 10 or 15 seconds of that song, they'll realize they probably heard them. But they're a band that once you dive into it, you're like, wow, man, they had a bunch of really grooving tunes. Absolutely. And um, it, it, it it's interesting to think where they maybe would have gone had that drummer not passed away because... I think I think it kind of did, you know, it, it, they stayed together for another, what, like eight years or so after that. But like it was just never the same after that. They, the the, they, the yeah. quality of the music, like they were really tight. Yeah. And in the 70s, too, like, I mean, those that, that's a band that just oozes 70s, you know, um, so it was probably oh, yeah. a little bit more challenging to transition to. To the 1980s, yeah. you know? Well, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, the only way Chicago got away with it is, you know what I mean? They became like a Peter Cetera pop band. Yeah, right, good, right, like, the power was, ballads. You can't really think of any of those bands, like, that went from being, like, like the Tower of Power or Average White Band or how Chicago originally was. Mm-hmm. Like, none of those bands were able to push that sound into the 80s, really. Right, right, Which is yeah. Shame. It's interesting that you mentioned that, too, like um, all those bands that you just mentioned, like Tower Power and Chicago and Average White Band, with the exception of um, Average White Band had one African-American or one Scottish black guy in the band. You know, it's it's 
It's like it, it, it's like white boy funk. And the reason I bring that up is kind of a funny, quick anecdote. Um, I saw Fish over the weekend a couple nights, and I went the first night with um, uh, someone who uh, he's dating one of Steph's college friends, and obviously she's really into Fish too, and he's not. It was his first show, yeah. but he's he's also a musician, and he's really knowledgeable about music. You know, you know, just. Um, older stuff and 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 new and he's got a band as well too um so he was there it was his first time and like like about set break i'm like so what do you think dude you know like this is your first show. this is a lot to take in he's like yeah i don't mind it he's like it's basically just white guys playing funk right and i said <laughs> yeah kind of i guess it is <laughs> right? so yeah on that note yeah um but yeah no it's interesting because you know they were they were early funk pioneers, um, but from a very unlikely place. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah you right. wouldn't think. Yeah, like, and especially for that drummer, like I said, he died when he was only twenty four. Right. And so he had been playing in funk bands in Scotland and England for for years already. So it's like. It's crazy that music can, there's truly no boundaries. Sure. If the music can make its way somewhere, people will consume it. And oh, yeah. usually there's always someone that it touches and it changes their life. You know what I mean? Yeah. And oh, it obviously, yeah. it obvious, like soul music, obviously touched those guys' lives. And um, yeah. Absolutely. It, it made our lives all the better because we got the average white band out of it. It's good stuff, man. I, I have to admit, I, I hadn't really listened to like a lot of their LPs start to finish, you know, until you, mm -hmm. you know, you told us you were going to induct them. Um, and so I listened today. I was I was kind of working from home today. Um, well, the kids are daycare, so I had some time to play music a little bit louder than I normally do. And uh, yeah, man, I listened to the first three LPs and they were all just the first three big LPs, you know, from the 70s. They were all just just choice, man. So good, good, good work. Yeah, um, I'm gonna. If it's okay if I take the second one, because uh, I think Jonathan's inductee, we all really have uh, a shared experience with them. But um, the reason I want to take the the next one, the segue, is because I also have a share connection. All right, with this group, <laughs> Levi had mentioned. You know, unfortunately, this fatal party uh, at Share's Share and Greg Allman's place. Um, and also, we've got an Almonds connection. Yeah, later, right. too. guys, what do you know? Huh? This was not planned, everyone. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, you know, back in 1978, when this band was was already sort of established, um, Cher, uh, who would have been actually post Greg Almond, she would have been with Gene Simmons at the time, I believe. Um, 1978, Cher saw this band perform in San Francisco. And um, was really taken by them and had them appear on her TV show at the time. Um, and if you guys get a chance to ever watch the footage from that share TV special from 1978, it is it is Mondo Bizarre. OK, um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, the fact that this was like on network TV in 1978 is pretty crazy. Um, it's trippy as hell. It's a song of theirs, you know, it, about smoking and like <laughs> there's just cigarettes everywhere. Um, it's just weird. Just watch it is all I got. It's, it's Cher and 
the band that she hosted on her show and also performed with, um, it's more of like a, it's a skit slash musical performance. The band I'm talking about is the tubes. Um, and, uh, the tubes, uh, as I mentioned, are, uh, a San Francisco band formed in the early 1970s. Uh, some of most people have certainly heard one tube song. And that song is in no way indicative of the strength of their material, although I don't think it's a bad song for what it is. Um, The song She's a Beauty Beauty from 1983 um, from the... uh, It's on every dad rock compilation ever made. Right. You know, and, and, and <laughs> you know, I was, I was, I was thinking when I was, when I, when I, when I, when I, when I narrowed in on the, the tubes as my selection, I thought of another band guys that, um, also, and the, they're not similar musically to the tubes, um, that also like has that like 80 song that everybody knows, but most people don't know their awesome catalog from the previous decade, the Jay Giles band. Right. For sure. I mean, you listen to like, you know, like everybody's like, oh, yeah, centerfold, you know, it's like, um, like back fast, you know, rewind a few years. Jake Al's band 77 kicks ass, you know, and um, it's, you know, it's it's not indicative of of what uh, the 80s stuff was, what they could do, although it was, you know, their commercial breakthrough. They were veteran artists. Quite frankly, they probably needed the breakthrough, you know, because they were they were it's certainly. you know, kind of almost local acts before that, you know, Jake Isles in Boston, the tubes in San Francisco. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's, it's just it, the parallels, I think, to, to the success that they had in the eighties, the despite being um, putting out their best material in the seventies, I thought was, was kind of striking, but anyway, um, so yeah, the tubes really are like, think of it this way, right? Think of like gorilla street theater, Right. Which was popular in San Francisco in like the late 60s. You know, all these weird mimes and shit, you know, and all that. Right. Like, yeah, I almost right. like their early stuff to like fire sign theater. But like, oh, yeah, they cared. They gave like more shit about the music. Too. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. Like it's like it's really like campy humor. Yeah. Meets stage act meets. Oh yeah, like, it's just but like the music is pretty solid. They were it is. like they were a surprisingly tighter band in the seventies, I think, than what people think. Oh, absolutely. Like I yeah. think they people got a lot. Some people got caught up into the whole shtick of it all. Yeah, but like they could play. Right, right. I mean, the theatrical performances got them noticed. You know, that's how Cher noticed them. Um, yeah. You know, when she saw them in '78, uh, they had had a minor song, "White Punks on Dope." from their first LP, which is a great song. Uh, and certainly one of the best song titles ever, um, <laughs> which I thought was funny. Um, you know, they were, they were theatrical. You know, they were, they were, they were known for, for all these big theater perform theatrical performances, um, kind of following in the footsteps of somebody, even like, like David Bowie, you know, or, or like kind of Genesis, but with or more Genesis, of a comedy influence. Right. But more of a, yeah, exactly. More of a comedy. And, and, you know, it's, they would, uh, there were comedy elements like um, like the folks at like National Lampoon's Kentucky Fried Movie, um, you know, some of the other the other kind of um, street performer or well, not street performers necessarily, but but like kind of comedy ground scenes and like comedy all, like SCTV of the seventies, yeah. yeah, like they they have that vibe to them, you know. It's it's it seems like the tubes were always in on the joke, you know. 
um, they were like really this band of misfits. And I, I, I feel like the tubes really for a brief period there, I think they kind of hijacked rock and roll. And I mean the hijacking as a term of endearment, you know, um, they, you know, some of what came before them, they had a little bit of that. I, I wasn't surprised to hear that there was an Alice Cooper connection, um, because just in terms of, 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 uh, producers, uh, Alice Cooper's original drummer, his name's Gary something. I, I forgot. His, Gary Spleen, I think, or Spleen, I think, is oh, his yeah. last name. He ended up producing the Tubes' first record, and he was the one that was, like, kind of really fighting for them, you know? Um, got, got, got like, Bill Graham to notice him, you know? And um, there was actually a contest, or not a contest, but this guy kind of issued a challenge to Bill Graham, like, what do you want? You know, you need to start promoting the Tubes. You know, this, all these people around San Francisco think they're they're really cool and kind of crazy, you know. And Bill Graham, like, didn't really like them, I guess, or, like, wasn't that impressed with it. And they're like, he's like, okay, so if they can sell out, like, three nights at one of the venues I work with, I'll let them pick the opening bill for any act that I, any, any, any show that I promote. Right? So sure enough, they sold out three nights. And they got to, they, the tubes got to pick and they opened for Led Zeppelin um, <laughs> at Kizar Stadium. I think like around like mid seven of the, of the height of Zeppelin's popularity, you know? So, so yeah. So the tubes always seem to be kind of pulling one over on somebody, which, which I liked. Um, there were certainly this band of kind of merry pranksters mm-hmm. continuing the long tradition of San Francisco weirdos, you know? Um, these were kind of, it was, and just when I got to thinking, you know, one of the tubes, members who we i think we we talked about before we started recording and this is how i discovered the tubes you know in college you know i'm listening to the grateful dead a lot uh and you know levi's giving me bootlegs too and things like that and this you know this guy that played with the dead in the 90s who's who got inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame with them in 1994 vince welnick right um you know i didn't know when i was listening to those early dead those dead shows from the early 90s this guy's got like a whole past, you know, with this really weird group, you know, called the tubes. So that's kind of what turned me on to him. You know, I, I, I learned that Vince Welnick was in the group and I heard him and I was like, wow, you know, this is really, this is really interesting stuff. And I didn't start listening to him more so more heavily until, until more recently. Um, but, but yeah, that's how I discovered the tubes and maybe some people that are in the, the dead as well, but it kind of, you know, and then I was like, well, wait a minute, how did this guy go from the tubes to playing with the grateful dead? But if you think about some of the other elements I've discussed already, San Francisco, right, sort of counterculture, um, you know, the dead kind of, you know, embodied a lot of the 60s, like the the me or the sorry, the, excuse me, the we decade, you know, where everybody's, you know, smoking weed and playing in parks and, you know, all that shit. And then, you know, you go to the 70s, which most people consider the me decade, right? And it makes sense. the the the, the tubes were uh, were were sort of. Uh, if you listen to a lot of their lyrics, it's a lot of a. It's kind of an attack on consumer culture, you know, which was happening abundantly in the seventies. You know, it's like, you know, sixties are over, Vietnam's over. You know, everybody's got to make money, do cocaine, and you know, like we got to make our music dancier, and you know, and like the tubes like kind of embraced that, but at the same time, like I said earlier, they were all in. They were in on the joke. You know, it's like they, I don't know, it's like, to me, it's like the tubes, because I think a lot of the lyrics are still pertinent today, even if the technology's changed. You know, you look at their 1979 album, produced by Todd Rundgren, um, and this is actually, I think, my favorite of their records. It's not their most well-known, but it's a concept album about this prodigy that's, like, raised up by a television, 
All right. Um, Todd Rugger produced it, Remote Control from 1979. You know, you replace the technology and the lyrics are still are still really poignant and pertinent and funny and 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 strangely and, and eerily, you know, topical now. Um, so to me, it's always like the, the, the tubes got this memo from the future that nobody else was in on, you know, <laughs> and they uh, they really broadcast their their vision of this kind of dystopian. Well, this of this this scary kind of surveillance consumer culture, you know, all those other things um, that were that are just sort of in circulation with technology in the 70s and now Um they, they kind of went, they kind of dove into it laughing all the way, you know? Um, and, and if you watch some of their, their, their performances, you know, I, I mentioned it's like guerrilla theater meets like space oddity also meets like total S and M bondage as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like if you watch fee Waybill, um, who was the, the lead singer of the, of the tubes, you know, the guy puts on like full bondage outfits even today like in his late 60s early 70s he'll still wear like you know uh assless pants you know for a couple songs and stuff so you know they're still having a lot of fun um but anyway you know to me uh i i mentioned the three albums that um that are that really stand out um i actually say four for them uh i think their first record all the way up to remote control is all great um, so that's like 75 to 79. They got four LPs. They were they were cranking them out. Um, they've got a 1977 one called Now that is really good. And the 1979's Remote Control, produced by Todd Rundgren, is my favorite. Um, so I would start with their first record, as well as any of those four that I that I mentioned. Young and Rich, I think, is the, the one from 1976. Their second LP is great as well. And... Um, then all of that catalog and all those antics from the 70s and even being on Cher's TV show, all of that aside, most people only know him from one song, you know, from She's a Beauty, you know, which gets gets put on compilations with like Rock Me Amadeus, you know, and like, you know, it gets this really term, you know, this this one hit wonder term, which describes a lot of bands that I like a lot. So I, I find it to be kind of a derisive term. Um but the tube seemed sort of well equipped for the eighties because they were using a lot of technology pretty early, you know, like the, a lot of synthesizers um, on their seventies record. So they transitioned to the eighties really well. I heard a quote, somebody said that, you know, the tube started making music videos even before MTV yeah. and somebody's like, they were pioneers. They were just too early. You know, is what somebody said. Yeah, um, I believe they made like a video to accompany their like 1978 record. Right. Yeah, they made which like, is like, like, people, like people weren't doing that. Video. Yeah. yeah, they 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 really embraced uh, the the music video medium uh, much earlier than it had a platform in MTV. Uh, but then when MTV came around, you know, they were they were She's a Beauty was was MTV ready. You know, um, it, it's 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 poppy. It's catchy. Um, the video nice... had the video has like campiness to it though. Oh yeah, stuff. they oh, like yeah. don't they while they while they made the sound more accessible, mm -hmm. they didn't lose their like campiness or kitschiness. Yeah, right, right. No, I I don't think so. It was it was still fun, but um in uh uh and and still kind of like a joke, you know, um when when they entered the eighties, um it's. 
their time in that decade was was I thought well spent, even if it was limited. And it's kind of unfortunately sort of what, even though they play today, you know, is sort of a you know a, with a, a three of the five people, three of three people that they had from those those the heyday. Um, the that that kind of tore them apart. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where it's like the commercial success in the long run hurt them more than it helped them. In the short term, it was good. Got them on MTV. 1983, I mentioned David Bowie. They were the opening act for Bowie in 1983 on his biggest tour uh, to date. Uh, It was, uh, I forgot what it's called, the 1983 Bowie tour. This can be found out. Peter Gabriel opened some shows too. But uh, yeah, the Tubes played first, uh, which was fitting, you know, because you've also got uh, really weird artists from the 70s in Gabriel and Bowie transitioning to this new decade where you know everybody's uh things are a little leaner and a little more economic when it comes to music so the I, I mean the economic in the sound i mean the economic yeah, yeah um but but yeah you know the um uh, there was kind of from what i read what broke them up really was that after the the album 198 from that that she's a beauty's on from 83 which was huge you know, it was a top 10 hit. The song was um, the Capitol Records had a bunch of layoffs and the and like some of the people that were kind of fighting for the tubes got laid off. Um, so they released an album called Love Bomb, which commercially didn't do as well. And it really just kind of fall apart after that. You had one faction of the group that kind of appreciated the more oddball things they were doing in the 70s. And then you had a new faction or not, well, another faction of the group that was like, let's let's keep pressing this more pop oriented sound that we had on, you know, on She's a Beauty. So that kind of really drove them apart. Um, they've since, you know, they've reunited since then. Uh, you know, then obviously, like I mentioned, Vince Welnick, strangely enough, joined the Grateful Dead after the tubes broke up for a little while. And then, you know, the, they've, they've been playing off and on, um, you know, I think since like the late 90s. Um, so with Fee Wayville, I had a chance to see Prince. Vince Wolnick solo oh, in okay. the uh, early 2000s one, uh-huh. and he was really good. But he was, um, you could tell he was sick, or yeah, he's a guy that certainly had some demons, you know. Yeah, um, he ended up killing himself in 2006. He did. Yeah, yeah. So uh, certainly a guy that that faced his struggles. Um, but yeah, quite a uh, um, this whole other life that he had. Before the Grateful Dead, I just I, mm-hmm. I find really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's, oh yeah. It's interesting and to see how actually, that actually um, when they well, what was the first tour they did after Jerry died? Was it the other ones or something? Was that what they were yeah called ninety ninety six the other ones something like that? Yeah, he was like pretty hurt that they didn't ask him. I mean, I Randy, he, yeah. he had only been in the band like five years, but like he had played every live show basically. For and him and Jerry years. were close from what I read too. And so yeah, he was, he was that, I think that hurt him a lot more than, than what people knew. Well, yeah. I mean, you've got this, you know, ubiquitous lucrative legacy that's been built now for what Jerry Garcia has been dead for 23 years, 24 years. Oh, yeah. You know, he wasn't a part of it. You know what I mean? He's not, he's not a part of this these post-Jerry riches that everybody else is doing quite well on. And that's not a knock, you know, whatever. They made the music, too. Uh, but, yeah, I think you're right, Levi. I think uh, I'd re- from what I've read, 
that was uh, that was quite a blow to him to not really be part of the family, so to speak. After well, that, after and like I, like I mean, I'm obviously no <laughs> psychiatrist or anything like that, but like you could sense almost a sadness to him when I yeah. saw him play live. Well, that's that's going to take its toll not only on your emotions but your pocketbook as well. You know, I right. mean, yeah. So yeah, um, but anyway, um, yeah. So you know, if you're if you're um, Check out Vince Welnick's previous band, The Tubes. Um, I, they're they're my inductee. They're also in the film Xanadu with Olivia Newton-John as well. Um, so there's some there's. I, I want to give a shout out. I didn't get to watch nearly as much as I wanted, but there's a YouTube channel called The Tubes called Tubes Project, uh, which is which has collected a lot of old footage, even some shows from '75 when like they played when they played like the Fillmore in the Winterland. Um, up until, you know, some of the, the TV appearances in the 80s as well. Like, they were on solid gold once as well. <laughs> like, yeah, um, they, they turned down Saturday Night Live because they wouldn't let them play long enough, I guess. So, so yeah, they, they they stuck to their guns, I think, most of the time. Um, so, yeah, the Tubes, my my inductee, kind of long-winded there, but uh, they're, uh, they're an important piece of, of, of rock history that deserves uh, much more recognition. So, the tubes, you're in the rocker. You're in the you're in, you're a chew in now. Well done. So to 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 segue then to uh, to my pick, uh, this is very much uh, has to do with with my personal history of rock and roll and mm-hmm. and how I experienced it. And uh, but and to do that, I think you know you first have to like set the scene as uh, you know I was 18 or 19 years old in in the late 90s and up to that point mainly stuck with uh you know the 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 Pearl Jam and and Allman Brothers band and Eric Clapton and and Neil Young and and uh STP and 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 kind of stuck around that scene uh in terms of uh, both uh, uh recorded albums and uh going to see concerts and uh so as a result mostly going to arena shows uh basketball arenas or amphitheaters um uh, up to that point, and so that was my live experience, and uh, and and these, uh, like I said, you know, the, the newer bands of, uh, you know, in in the in the '90s, they had these like this blue chip influence, uh, whether it be uh, the, the the Who or Zeppelin, and it was, so it was really obvious segues to, oh yeah, well these bands are easily accessible on the aforementioned WYMG, and right. and so. You know, those years as a teenager collecting albums, it was it was fairly straightforward. Um, and 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 speaking of, um, uh, you know, the Allman Brothers band, uh, there was uh, a, a kind of a, a renaissance of the Allman Brothers band in the uh, late 80s. Mm-hmm. And as I grew to uh, learn more about uh, this band, particularly with um, uh, Where It All Begins, their album from 1994, uh, which I really latched on to, and the two subsequent live albums that were, were released, first set and second set, I believe. Um, I, I, I learned more about uh, a couple of the newer members of the Allman Brothers band, uh, the, those being uh, uh, Warren Haynes on guitar and Alan Woody on bass. And, and, and mainly because... Warren's uh, 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 songwriting credits were littered throughout these these newer records. 
uh, from the Allman Brothers band from from the past from the previous seven or eight years, and and then Alan Woody um, really stuck out because I believe there was a, a concert video, an Allman Brothers concert video where he's playing an eighteen string bass, and that you know as an eighteen year old you see that it just kind of blows your mind. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, these two guys uh, uh, team up with uh, a drummer uh, named Matt Apps. Uh, who I believe was uh, worked with Dickie Betts, correct? Um, yep. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so they formed the sign project, the side project uh, called uh, Government Mule, and this was a, a, a unique circumstance uh, to uh, to to learn about a band. You know, essentially there are these young guys in this very accomplished band and mm-hmm. you know one of the most uh you know uh, recognized rock and roll bands of all time and and they're kind of doing their own thing at the same time so this was very intriguing right uh, and at the same time they, you know it was this music that they were creating was was a spinoff of of these blues and jazz jazz genres that um there was something i respected uh but those genres in their rawest form didn't grab me uh, as much as rock and roll did, and in, in this kind of um, uh, this the that current state of the evolution of rock and roll, which I think is still a thing that people ignore too often because rock and roll is still so young, yet it evolves so much over a short period of time, and 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 so I had really latched onto this you know '90s rock and roll and. And tried to dabble in things like a Muddy Waters album. Um, and while I appreciated the Muddy Waters album, it wasn't something that I was going back to repeatedly. Um, but I very much respected it. But It's wh- easier to appreciate who they influence sometimes more than than the absolutely. originator. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and to understand their... Um, uh, the, uh, the influence on on government mule uh, and how they turned it into their own sound uh, you know this hard blues and rock that that uh, for lack of a better word updated the sounds I had already loved in, in being you know the Allman Brothers band or Led Zeppelin um, it was uh, it, it was this perfect melding of 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 musical genres and, and evolution of these genres that that took it to another level and, and, and with their, um, uh, right. There were essentially rumors about government mule, um, before I had really, uh, heard them. And, and so I, uh, I, I, I distinctly remember I, I got rained out at work one day. I was working construction and, and we got rained out one afternoon. So I decided to go into Springfield and go to go to Best Buy, and 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 I picked up uh, both uh, uh, their uh, debut album and um, uh, and Live at the Roseland Ballroom. Uh, the and so this is this is probably '98. So those albums have been out for a few years already, and uh, you know to to uh, to hear these albums with with songs like Mule and, and these these extended cuts in the studio, um, and uh, you know, both hard rocking uh, songs and uh, some very, very introspective, um, uh, uh, slower paced songs that that is uh, kind of a hallmark of, of Warren Haynes' songwriting. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it it 
it added something to my to my record collection that I hadn't had before. And and so I was excited to finally see these guys live um, because they they now I, I, I did look at my set list FM stats. And the first time I saw them was, uh, I believe, at Riverport Amphitheater because it was part of uh, fest, a, a festival. Um and but but probably after, horde festival i think horde fest yeah yeah um it would have been like the dose tour or the first album yeah it'd been like 98 or so i think yeah i'm, I'm frantically signing into my no, no. FM account right now and um but uh subsequent shows were at places like mississippi nights which is a a, a tiny club on the riverfront in rest St. in peace yeah right over there. right um and uh yeah it was uh july of 98 was the first show at riverport um and then march of um incidentally it was march of 99 was was the the um first show that i saw uh at the vic um so it was a a, a theater a nice size theater uh in chicago um before wow. those uh, mississippi night shows so but what i'm getting at was the idea that this was a band that uh, presented the opportunity to see these guys up close and personal. The Almer Brothers band were, you know, they were they were headlining at Riverport, right. and meanwhile, these guys, uh, you know, Warren and Alan and Matt, they were playing three feet away from you on a stage, you know, that's that's uh, uh, not much bigger than than your office, and and just blowing you away with with this. Oh yeah, well, and especially at Mississippi Nights because that place, man, it could just. That place could get on fire, man. Just not just the oh, yeah. heat of, the, of yeah. all the people. Yeah, a lot of body. Like, heat, man, yeah. that was a some of the box. best shows I ever saw there. Those two government mule shows there. I was lucky enough we saw Blue Floyd there. Um, yeah. yeah. Mississippi Nights, man, had some good shows. Yeah, oh, yeah. and, and, and the, the the floor was conducive to it because it was a bit more confined on the floor. You know, yeah. you could step down, and there was limited space right up there on up against the stage. And so, learning the thrill of the club show as a result is is what the mule offered uh, me. And it was like this this overpowering intimacy because it was right there, it was in your face. I should have been wearing earplugs. I was not. <laughs> Still regret it. But in the at the in the moment, you know, you yeah. really enjoy it. And so. Uh, in in the the, the set list. Uh, so this was the beginning of of my uh, venture into uh, uh, the the jam band scene, uh, as it were. And 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 so you expected things like arrows and set lists. And this is when one song leads into another, leads into right. another. And and the mule offered this, but it felt a little bit different than what I was familiar with. Whether. Um, whether it could be a, a a dead show or a you know even a widespread panic show, where a lot of times it's pretty even keeled, um, and and yeah you have you have your dynamic ups and downs, um, but but the mule shows seem to offer more of a narrative, in my opinion, and 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 you know they they would often start with something you know heavily a cappella. Um, uh, where you know mainly vocals, minimal guitar, maybe Alan Woody on mandolin for the first song, mm-hmm. and and Matt Apps just kind of sitting back, and then that would bust into uh, uh, something much more aggressive. And they know so, how to do a slow burn, definitely. Oh man, oh geez, and yeah, and that that might you know turn into you know some you know seventeen minute version of Mule that has 
three or four other teases inside of it. Um, and, uh, and, and so this, this is what I felt was a narrative that, that I, I really latched onto in their concerts and, 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 you know, this was, uh, loud and it was, it was aggressive, heavily blues influenced, as I said. And as a result, I felt like it offered a line of demarcation in the mm-hmm. jam band scene mm-hmm. and that, yeah. that this was, there, there were the people that, that you would not necessarily see at all the concerts you go to, but you knew the scene, you know, you, you knew that the type um, uh, of, of people that much like yourself, that we were going to these concerts, whether it be widespread panic or the black crows or, or, you know, there were many more at the time. Um, but the mule wasn't really for everybody. And that made it all the more enjoyable because mm-hmm. there would be a lot of, uh, a lot of people who enjoyed the other bands that you were also, also listening to, but didn't like mule. And I, right, was, right. I was down with that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. When I played them to some of my fish loving friends, you know, when I first started turning on to them, yeah, not everybody, not everybody latched onto it. It had, uh, it's too heavy for yeah. Him. It had too much hair on his chest for him, you know. Yeah, right. Right. yeah, right. and then, yeah. Whether it be like Warren's vocals, or you know the very dark undertones of of his, of his lyrics, um, right. uh, you know he he Warren was somebody who who kind of wrote from this shell. Yeah, and uh, it wasn't quite as abstract. You know this this kind of I'm not going to say nonsensical abstract, but it was. Uh, you know, a lot of music and lyrics from that time were so abstract that you're like, I have no fucking idea what that's about. Right. But, yeah, yeah, but it, it sounded like non-threatening, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, like Jerry Garcia was an influence on the guy, but so was Tony Iommi, you know? Sure. I mean, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, you know, physically, the the mule were these imposing figures, um, uh, both Warren and Allen, and being right there in your face as when you're watching them. Uh, at, at Mississippi nights and, but they were completely approachable, you know, they were, mm-hmm. it's, it was funny to, you know, hear Alan talk for the first time from stage where, you know, you, you see these photos of him, but you, obviously he doesn't sing back up. And, uh, and, and then you would go to a show and, and uh, finally Alan speaks up in the middle of the show. He's like, I want to thank everybody for coming out tonight. Right. <laughs> he does have an interesting voice. Yeah. And he, you know, yeah, he had this, uh, unexpectedly high, high pitch uh, yeah. in his voice, and and so it just like it was totally disarming in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course you know Warren is uh, you know very approachable. You know we would hang out after shows, and 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 they were yeah you know, like come on let's get a photo and and a uh, southern gentleman if there ever was absolutely one, yeah. absolutely. So but then to get back to the sound, you know the the mule the. It, it could be like a, it's, it sounded like a tornado, you know, uh, you would in the movies or a cartoon, there would be a tornado going and there'd be like a rocking chair in it and a piano and, and things. And, and, and so like, I I think that's how I visualize the mule sound is this tornado and there's, there's a guitar in there and there's a bass on there and, and there's, there's the drums in there. And at any given moment, you could either just hone in, you could just, you could just watch and, and hear the guitar or just the bass, or just the drums, or you could just appreciate the tornado for this like massive thing that was standing right yeah. there in front mm-hmm. of you. The comedy of sound. Oh my god! And right. and and like I said, you know, transitioning from blues to jazz um, and back, and and to to straightforward, you know, at times just pop songwriting um, uh, was something that I, I felt was unique to them, both in that genre. 
and um, in the rock and roll scene as a whole. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Warren's range and, and styles and techniques as a guitarist, I mean, was totally tantamount to this, this sound working because he had so much influence um, from all these various uh, 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 genres of music. And he could execute it. And yeah. Yeah, they they were even when Alan was still alive, they were like not afraid to cover pretty much like any style of music. Like if it was a song yeah. they liked, it seemed like and they they carried oh, that on through. You know, they ripped. Yeah. Dude, you ever heard their version of When Doves Cry? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. Dude, I've heard yeah. them cover the Bee Gees. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, and they were unafraid to put those influences on display, like no matter how in Congress they might seem like Radiohead. Sure. Um, yeah. you know, they, they've covered four, four different Pearl Jam songs. Right. Uh, uh, and, you know, sometimes and the, salvation, right. They covered the salvation. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. They, yeah, they would do this thing where they would cover contemporary artists, which was something very common in the seventies, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Rod Stewart would, uh, you know, singing Paul McCartney songs during sure. concerts, and, and, and then that kind of stopped in, in the eighties and most of the yeah. night, then the mules like, no, we're going to play these songs that you know, just got huge either, you know, recently or in the near past. And, but really for me, you know, at the core, it was the jazz influence of the mule that, that, that influence kind of held my attention. Uh, Songs like birth of the mule. And, and, and because I, while I appreciate uh, 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 jazz, I, I, I'm by no means an aficionado, and um, I, I kind of have a hard time knowing where to start at that age. And, and but they brought this sound. It's like, oh, OK, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, this mix of, of jazz and rock. And uh, that was something that that I really latched on to and, and, and was a theme throughout their shows uh, as well. And uh, so it was it was all of these things uh, uh, that that created this this band that. Uh, you know, have their debut album. That's self-titled, right? Uh, that it did. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, uh, Dose, which is my personal favorite record, and yeah. uh, Life Before Insanity, which is uh, the last record that Alan Woody appeared on. And uh, I think all of those are, are very good uh, uh, studio records. I think Dose and, and Life Before Insanity are are, are the better of the three. Um, and uh, you know, well well written music, well tracked, uh, um, and. I, I think that uh, Life Before Insanity was uh, an interesting shift in the music. You know, they, they started to bring in some keyboards on on that record that um, would be part of their uh, band um, after Alan Woody uh, died and uh, would always be a part of this. Yeah, this they've band. been a four-piece ever since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and... Uh, so yeah, that that's what uh, you know. Government Mule has 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 been to me. They they've since uh, released several more studio albums and and played hundreds and hundreds of shows. Um, I think they, they prolific like sixty or seventy shows a year. Um, yeah, it's unbelievable. So um, with Warren Haynes holding down a position and for a little while, what three bands at one time? I went like saw, that. Yeah, once I saw Warren Haynes play eight hours in one day. Uh, uh, two hours for Government Mule, and then uh, three hours with the Allman Brothers, and three hours with Phil Lesh and friends, uh, which was pretty remarkable. <laughs> yeah, wow. So, uh, so yeah, in uh, I'm saying all this, you guys have have equal 
uh, opinions and experience yep. with Mule. So I'll, I'll let you guys chime in. Important to me, you know, um, less so now, you know, I, uh, I, I have to admit, uh, as I, I think I maybe have said on this show before, the loss of Alan, um, I never necessarily as a Mule fan, so to speak, recovered from it um, in the sense Agreed. that yeah. uh, I, I respect, obviously, them carrying on and and that that's great. And uh, they've they've, I, I guess, evolved um, since then. But but yeah, you know it, that was a really probably one of the biggest losses of my mu- of of you know me as a music fan was certainly when he passed away in two thousand. We were all uh, in on the mule when he yeah died. yeah that was oh, you yeah. know weird, I was I was weird. so into him. All three of us, you know, were, yeah. were, were knee deep in mule, and then to lose him like in the middle of it um, was was difficult uh, for me, and I I. Uh, I just, it hasn't been the same for me since I respect what they do. And, um, I, I, I certainly think they, um, they can still put on a good live show, but gosh, you know, I just, I, I, I can't, I, they just, they exist as that power trio to me, you know, that's, that's the ideal mule. And obviously, you know, I'm sure they, they probably wanted to keep it that way as well, but that's just not how it goes. Um, do you think what? it would have stayed? They would have stayed a power trio. I don't um, know. Maybe not. if Alan hadn't died. You know, I didn't think about life before insanity having. Um, it does have a, some of those some of those layers in the keys as well that that previous records, the previous couple LPs didn't. So yeah, who knows? They may have. You know, they could have been already in discussion that they were going to bring in Danny Lewis. You know, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> But I, I guess I, I kind of discovered them around the same time as you. Um, I remember uh, I read about them in an issue of Relics, Relics magazine, uh, which I don't read anymore, but I'm still glad to see it's still going. Um, but, yeah, I read about them um, like right when I start. I, I bought this issue of Relics um, like right before I started college, and it was like. I got it at like Barnes and Noble, you know, and it wasn't even the current one. It was like from a few years or a few, not a few years, sorry, a couple months earlier. And within it, they were reviewing um, a Black Crows concert. And at the time, this had been like 97, I was really getting into the Black Crows. Um, and uh, there was a review, Government Mule opened up for the Black Crows um, for most of their fall 96 tour. Okay. Um, and, you know, they, they, they would come out and play with the Crows, etc. Um, so I was into the Crows, so I heard about, you know, I read this article, and they were talking, they were, the, the, whoever wrote the review was really praising the mule, you know, a lot. And so then I got to college, like, a couple weeks later, and I was like, well, you know, I'm going to check them out, you know, I'm going to get, and sure enough, you know, the record stores didn't have them, um, any of their, their stuff. So I, I went to this record store called Rock and Robbins that um, isn't in Macomb anymore. There's probably about 900 record stores across the country called Rock and Robbins as well. But anyway, um, I went in there. You know, I, I told the cat that was working there about him, and he hadn't heard him either. But he sounded intrigued, so he ordered it for me. You know, and then like, God, like you know, it's like pre Amazon. Even like two weeks later, it got there. You know, God, I had to wait two weeks. Um, yeah, so two weeks he gets – I order live at the Roseland Ballroom that Jonathan mentioned, which is uh, a live recording from actually when they opened up for Blues Traveler at the Roseland Ballroom in 95-ish, 
95, 96, something like that. And uh, I'm and the guy had at the record store had ordered a copy as well. You know, he's like, oh, you know, you, you talking about him kind of piqued my interest. I ordered it, too. And he we put it on right there in the record. Store. Nice. And nice. Fucking cracked it. <laughs> right. So the first track is that train. Yeah. Uh, the instrumental. And, you know, about three quarters of the way through that, they tease St. Stephen, mm-hmm. which was really, you know, Black Crows, Government Mule, Grateful Dead, all, you know, it's all kind of coalescing for an 18 year old me at the time. You know, I was like, whoa, look at look, look. like they, they ripped St. Stephen, you know, they like they like totally just like kicked it up a notch. And, you know, I, I, I brought it back and I started playing that for some of my sort of more jam band oriented friends in college. And they liked the St. Stephen tees, but they didn't like the rest of it. Right. right? <laughs> they like the rapper. <laughs> yeah. Right. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't like the rest of it, you know, but I was always like Jonathan mentioned, you know, this line of demarcation he plays, which I think is a good way because, you know, they were, uh, they were them and the crows, you know, to a lesser degree were, were kind of the, the harder acts within that scene, so yeah. to speak. So I always thought they stood out in the best possible way. Um, you know, among uh, stuff that was a little more sort of flowery. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I heard him then and I, you know, I was hooked ever since, you know, I, I you know, um, saw him quite a few times and uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a brief period, you know, about like 97 to 2000 that I was into him, but man, I was, I was really into him. Yep. Let's put it that way. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I was really into him. <laughs> It was like the almonds meet Sabbath, you know. I mentioned Tony sure. Iommi earlier, you know. That's what that's what it sounded like to me when people asked me, because yeah, I was I was you know aside from you guys, I was one of the first people of my friends at least at college as well, like that, that started listening to him. Most people didn't know who they were when I was started talking about him in '97, and people were like, "What do they sound like?" I was like, "Well, they sound like the Almond Brothers meets Black Sabbath." And people were like, "Oh, that sounds weird," you know. Or I'm not going to like that. I'm like, just listen to it, you know. So, so yeah, and I think that I think that that harder edge is how they gained the respect of such a wide group of fans, like you know Metallica, like Hetfield, like you know he went ape shit over the Mule, like when they first came yeah. out, like he loved them, yeah. still does, I guess, you know. Yeah, I mean. When uh, you look back at those the so the two um, Alan Woody posthumous uh, tribute albums essentially uh, the Deep End Volume One and Two the 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 musicians on that are unparalleled. I mean, is I can't think of 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 any other records that were made in such a fashion mm-hmm. uh, with such a variety of artists, uh, yeah. and that that speaks a lot to the respect that these artists had for what the Mule was doing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they pulled in, you know, people like Entwistle and Chris Squire and, you know, Flea and, and yeah. you know, yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah the Rising Low documentary. Yeah. Right. And yeah. The Deep End. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. So, yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. They're, 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 so, they're great, man. My uh, my bonus little teaser here, Gabe. How does Kiss and Government Mule. How are they related? I believe that Mark Michael Barbario, I think is this, I, I might be mispronouncing his last name. I want to say he produced a Kiss record, and he also produced the couple Government Mule records. Possibly I, that could be true, but my <laughs> I, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong on that. I know. Le- wait, Le- I know Le- Michael Le- Barbario Le- produced a couple Tesla records. When when um, when Peter Chris left Kiss, he hooked up with a guy named Stan Penridge. Mm-hmm. And the name. they had this band called the Chris 
Penridge Alliance. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the backing band was these four guys who had been playing in and around Nashville in a jazz rock fusion band called Montage. Mm. And that bass player was Alan Woody. No shit. And so ah, the, on I didn't YouTube, know that. If you type in the Chris Penridge Alliance at YouTube, they recorded a bunch of demos. And so you can hear Alan Woody playing bass for, for Peter, Peter Chris. Chris. And um, if it was, they if toured and did like probably like a, a dozen shows mm-hmm. as that band. And um, yeah, I just think that's a really weird link. I never knew that, that until cool. the research yeah. for this episode. Yeah, nice. I didn't know that. I I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I'd heard of the Chris Penridge Alliance, um, but I didn't know you know, who was involved or anything like that other than the two namesakes. But yeah, that's cool. I, I might be wrong on the Marco, Michael Barbario thing. I thought for some reason he'd maybe produced like a Kiss record, like Hot in the Shade or something like that, but I, I could be wrong. But anyway, cool. So um, some some quick stats uh, on the Mule. Uh, they've, uh, they've played 600 songs more than once mm-hmm. uh, in their touring. Uh, they've played uh, uh, 147 songs at least 50 times. And 235 songs at least 20 times. Hmm. Uh, that is uh, 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 quite. I mean, that just sh- goes to show that, like, in on any given night, you know, you, oh, you yeah. just don't know what you're gonna hear. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and uh, and so they're uh, kind of known for their covers in a way. Over the last 15 years, they've mm-hmm. uh, really. Uh, I'm not gonna say gained a following, but uh, but uh, it's always interesting to to see what they're gonna what they're going to play. But one of the covers uh, early on in the mule sets, um, something called young mule blues, which mm. was uh, this, this almost mashup before mashups of, uh, uh, of several uh, songs. Uh, and so it'd be uh, wrapped in young man blues and, uh, and they would insert uh, of, of various other teases within uh, that song. Uh, and, uh, and so that, and, so I, I asked you guys to, to give your your favorite Mule covers. If okay. You considered it, and so I would consider that, um, along with the Allman Brothers Band uh, uh, cover of "Kind of Bird," mm-hmm. um, uh, which is a great great jazz tune, yeah. and uh, and I and I threw out Pearl Jam's "Indifference" in there as well as one of my okay. favorite uh, covers of theirs. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. I don't have necessarily three, but one that sticks out the most with me is because I. I was there. It was at the show we were at. And um, like Warren had came out as everybody was lined up to get into Mississippi Nights. Warren came by and like was talking to people on the street, just like shaking hands with people and talking. And I said something like, hey, Mississippi Nights, how about some Mississippi Queen? And in the middle of like the first or second song, which was Don't Step on the Grass, he busts into... And we were we were like basically front row, so like I just lock eyes with them. Like, you got to be fucking kidding. We me. we actually Levi's head exploded. Everyone, we had to reconstruct him. Um, yeah. I'm the new. This is like the new Paul. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, that was that was that was just balls that out. Was pretty fucking epic. Yeah, dude, it was. It. Yeah, oh, it was killer. Yeah. I think it was from 99, actually. Or was it? Or no. No, it was from 2000. You're right. You're right. You're right. Because we all saw them in 99 at Mississippi Nights, too. Right. Yeah. Right. Because they did... Well, they did one of my favorite covers that night, which is um, on Dose, but they did She Said, She Said. Right. By the Beatles. Um, and they really just put their own spin on it. 
You know, I mean, oh, sure. they made this song yeah. their own. They yeah, made the song totally their own. Um, and I, Scott, I still listen to that that tune a lot. Um, yeah, I still put it on quite a bit. It's, it still really just knocks me out. And then they do, you know, they extend it with the Tomorrow Never Knows, another song on Revolver. They they created the jam um, instrumental, you know, uh, that they, they always tag on to She Said, She Said. So that's one of my favorites. Um, I You know, I mentioned, even though it's a tease, like, the St. Stephen tease was really cool, you know, like to have that sort of be that train. Like I said, it was the first song I'd heard by them. They're instrumental. Um, I don't think that's, is that a cover? It's on their first record train. No, that, that's an original. It's theirs. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's an instrumental, yeah. but um, anyway, so yeah, then, you know, to hear their, that really awesome version of St. Stephen, the tease that they do. And then um, also, um, uh, you know, I really like their version of Get Behind the Mule, the Tom Waits song. Oh, yeah. yeah I think it's pretty yeah, badass. Yeah. I, I just thought about that one a second ago. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, which is awesome. Yes. Their version of that um, is is really cool. Um, gosh, there's so many others. You know, those, those, those... It takes more than a hammer and nails to make a house a home. It's one yeah, of the favorite openers. Right. Yeah, yeah, staple singers. Yeah. 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 yeah, I could go on and on, you know, and... Um, yeah, they've covered virtually every artist I like. You that know, that so. being said, you know, their are original staples of Mule, Blind Man in the Dark, and Thorazine Shuffle, like which ah. they play pretty much every night, are I mean just fucking rip. Oh, um, and dude, I didn't realize that they were they played Blind Man in the Dark in their at their first show. So they held on to that for several years before recording it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Damn. Anyway. Yeah. I got a show from ninety-six at the cotton club in Atlanta. I don't know. I probably spun it for you guys. You guys probably have copies of it or, or it, but um, from the, the 96. So they were still in the almonds at that time, you know, near the end of their time with the almonds. And uh, it's badass too. Mark and Mark and Chris come out for, um, uh, for Mr. Big, which is another one of my favorite covers they do. Uh, and then I think they do presence of the Lord as well oh nice yeah. yeah it's yeah it's uh it, it's just yeah it's awesome so good stuff <laughs> yeah yeah no it's 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 as good as it gets right there so i think Absolutely. they do young you'll be lose that night too did they nice. i think with mark as well nice i think it's, it's hard yeah. to keep up on man I, yeah i don't yeah. just listening to the version from mississippi nights that we saw um i think that they played at the one that we were at yeah um but that it's it's unbelievable like the dexterity that they have to have switching from 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 tune to tune uh and back is yeah it's really something i mean three guys that are so skilled at their instruments you know it's like they're like rush you know i mean like sure. yeah three dudes that are just like at the top of like you like if you felt like a top five list of like musicians at that instrument you know mm-hmm. like they're they're all on it Sure. One, one, one other cover before I go, just because, like, this guy, you know, like, obviously when you hear a cover and it gets you into the original band is special. Um, I wasn't that familiar with Humble Pie prior to hearing 30 Days in the Hole, you know? I mean, Humble Pie is mm-hmm. awesome, and I've, I've since, they've since become, you know, a band I really cherish, uh, and just all of Steve Marriott's work, really, yeah, I, I would say I never really listened to him a ton until that no. little help from my friends CD. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which which that cover is amazing. Oh, yeah. uh, with Mark on it too. 
You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You got Mark and Warren just just Did that is that the album that had War Pigs too? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mr. Biggs on it too. Yeah. With, yeah, with yeah, yeah. I think I think that some... that 30 days went over so well they played it the next New Year's Eve. Yes. Uh, at the same <laughs> venue, which is not something that they'll do right. lightly to play the same song at the at the same right. venue two times in a row. With Oddly Freed the next year too. Right. Right. So it's yeah. like, huh, yeah. all right. They, they yeah. knew they had something going on there with 30 yeah. days in the hole. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that one, yeah, because that, that got me into Humble Pie. I really, you know, I, I didn't know much about Humble Pie prior to hearing them do it, you know? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, absolutely. So if you, if you haven't, if you haven't really dug into the mule, you, you, you got to check it out. Absolutely. Um, yeah, they kind of, you know, Jonathan was talking the other day uh, how they were coming to Kansas City. It kind of like talking about them and, and listening to it in the run up to this episode kind of made me sort of maybe want to see them, you know, one more time, you know, mm-hmm. or, or I don't know, maybe a couple more times because uh, I've, I've missed it. You know, I've, yeah. I've, yeah. yeah, I saw them probably five years ago on the Peoria oh. Riverfront and oh, they nice. were excellent. So nice. They were yeah. played a really killer rocking horse that night, which is one of my favorite. Nice. Yeah. Tunes. Gosh, I haven't. I somebody about ten years ago, somebody gave me a ticket. Um, they played down at Navy Pier, actually, at the mm-hmm. the Skyline mm-hmm. stage, which doesn't really get a lot of shows anymore. But it's one of my favorite spots in the city because you know you're right on the water, and then you know you look out and behind the stage, you got the yeah. whole city skyline right there. It's pretty picturesque. Uh, and they played that. Uh, it was just like '08 or '09. Uh, somebody gave me a ticket to that, and it, it was great. Still, you know, I at that point I'd I hadn't. I wasn't really listening to them that frequently, you know. Sure. Um, Alan had been gone for almost ten years at that point, but uh, but yeah, I was really impressed. So it's like they can, you know, they can still they can still bring it. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely. I would next time next time they come to Chicago, I'm going to see what I can do. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Well, good choices, everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well done. Nice to see that. Yeah, and, and I, I, as I mentioned, everyone, you can hear all of our previous induct our induction of all the previous artists who are now chew-ins. Um, you can find all those archived episodes. We'll post links to those as we promote this episode as well. Uh, for at rockchew.com. That's rockchew, C H O O. Dot com. You can follow us on Instagram and the Twitter at Rock in Chew. That's in as in no need to suffer. Uh, there's no need to suffer a shortage of episodes because they're all at rockchew.com as well. Um, so you can check us out on YouTube, uh, your favorite Spotify app, or your, sorry, your favorite Spotify app. Jesus, Spotify is really taking over. I actually think that's the one we're not on. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, so don't, no, that's don't check that. Don't yeah. check us um, out on Spotify. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, but yeah, you can check us out on your favorite podcasting apps, Stitcher, Spreaker, um, however you like. So yeah, check us out however you chew. Uh, and then leave us a review as well. Certainly it would help us out, and we appreciate the feedback. All right, until next time, we'll see everybody. And next episode is episode 100. So uh, we will cook up something delightful for you. All right, guys. Have a good night. Good night. Peace.